and welcome to We Are Rivers, stories about the rivers that connect us. I'm Paige Bono, your host. Whether you're a longtime listener or this is your first episode, we're excited to have you listen in today. After the episode, please consider taking a moment to rate and comment about We Are Rivers. We appreciate and will integrate your feedback. So today on We Are Rivers, we'll dive deeper into American Rivers' priorities for the Biden-Harris administration, and through those priorities, we'll learn about the ways that rivers weave us all together. We'll have a number of great guests today, but we'll lean most on Amy Cobra to guide us through. So let's get started. Amy, over to you. I'm Amy Cober. I'm the Vice President for Communications at American Rivers. So the Biden-Harris administration has identified key priorities that they are focusing on in their first 100 days. And those priorities are the economy, injustice, uh, public health, and climate change. And when we at American Rivers heard these priorities, um, we you know, our eyes lit up because these are our priorities too. Rivers run through all of these things and rivers connect connect these challenges and opportunities. So there are five key priorities that American Rivers has identified. Um, priorities that we need the Biden-Harris administration to advance in their first hundred days. So these priorities are one, Invest in rivers and clean water to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Number two, we need to reverse the regulatory rollbacks um, from the past four years and restore strong, effective federal protection for rivers and clean water. Number three, we need to improve protection and management of our floodplains. This is incredibly important um, as we're seeing more flooding with climate change. Number four, we want to launch a national initiative to prioritize and fund dam removals and river restoration. And then finally, number five, we want to increase protection of wild and scenic rivers. These are our our last um, healthy, free-flowing rivers in our country. Great. Thanks, Amy. Let's talk through them in that order. Starting with number one, investing in rivers and clean water to recover from COVID. So so the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed all kinds of things um, about our society and our lives. And one of the things that it has really brought to light is the fact that roughly 1 million people in our country lack access to indoor plumbing and more than 13 million U.S. households regularly face unaffordable water bills. And these numbers disproportionately represent low income and communities of color. These are communities that um, have faced just decades of underinvestment, lack of investment, um, and it's time to it's it's time to address that. When people can't wash their hands during a pandemic, that is a really serious problem. So, as part of our COVID recovery. As part of our investment in infrastructure and bringing bringing our bringing our nation back, we've got to make sure that this is a this is a baseline need of everyone in our country to have safe, clean, affordable water, access to drinking water, access to clean water. It is um, it's a human right, and it's something we all need to speak up for and fight for because it's absolutely connected to our health, to justice, um, to our to the to the to the well-being of all of our communities. 
about a year ago, uh, when the pandemic was first taking off, uh, our organization, American Rivers, teamed up with our partners at River Network to call on Congress to take some really um, important steps to to help address public health during the pandemic. Um, And now, as we're hopefully emerging from it, um, it, all this is is still important. So some of these some of these key issues include banning invo- involuntary water shutoffs nationwide, mandating safe restoration of water services for everyone without access, prioritizing water infrastructure funding to communities most in need of critical water infrastructure investments, and increasing and sustaining water infrastructure funding in general for water systems to ensure safe and affordable water and sanitation for everyone at all times, not just during a pandemic. As we saw with our Rivers as Economic Engines report, we know that investing in water infrastructure creates jobs. We have these numbers, we have these success stories, and now it's time to put this to work on a national scale. And we've found time after time that when you make the right kind of investments in healthy rivers and and water infrastructure, when you invest equitably, when you when you um, when the communities can can drive these investments and make these decisions, um, it just creates a whole a whole host of benefits. I think that caring for rivers, investing in rivers and clean water, it's something that pretty much everyone can agree on. Um, I think there are a lot of there's divisions in our country, um, disagreements about you know which way things should go, but. Every poll that I see uh, that asks people, what's your top concern about the environment or do you support taking these steps to, to restore this river across the board? It's it's yes. So it's something that we can all agree on. Doesn't matter what party or you know where you stand on the political spectrum. Rivers, as our tagline says, rivers connect us. Rivers can bring us together. And through rivers, I think we can come to some pretty exciting solutions about um, a lot of the challenges facing our country. While we always prefer to be forward-looking, and especially now, uh, and most of these priorities are that, sometimes you have to go backwards to go forward. And when it comes to clean water and healthy rivers, that just so happens to be the case. So our next priority, number two, is reverse regulatory rollbacks and restore strong, effective federal protections for rivers and clean water. One big priority for the Biden-Harris administration has to be restoring protections for clean water and drinking water sources. The Trump administration's dirty water rule gutted safeguards for small streams and wetlands, which are drinking water sources for one in three Americans. The Trump rule drastically weakened the reach and authority of the Clean Water Act to protect our nation's rivers, streams, and wetlands. It removed Clean Water Act protection for one in five streams nationally and 51% of all wetlands. So this opened the door to increased pollution, harmful development, destruction of these places that are so critical um, because they are drinking water sources for so many Americans. So the Biden administration must repeal this dirty water rule and they need to replace it with a new rule that provides comprehensive protections for these critical drinking water sources. 
already in, in their early days in office, the Biden administration has already signaled that they will be looking at this. They are already reviewing a number of uh, harmful rules under the Trump administration. So that those are now under review um, with the new administration. And that's great news uh, for anybody who values science, uh, anyone who is concerned about climate change, anyone who's concerned about clean water. We know that these are now values that that this administration will be looking at. So how does the administration take steps to address this series of crises? Part of it is restoring a, a, a public commitment to science and making sure we have the best information, showing people, showing the benefits of investing in healthy rivers and clean water, showing how these environmental protections can pay off over time. Breaking down these false dichotomies where, oh, you have to choose between the environment or, or the economy. That's false. You don't have to choose. In fact, investing in rivers and, and protecting a, your, your environment and the clean water you drink and the air you breathe, that actually has all kinds of benefits for the economy and for your community. The strong and unique thing about American rivers is that we have this national policy expertise and we can advance these improvements on the on the national level. And we're working on the ground in communities across the country. So we have these concrete examples. We know we have solutions. We are showing how they work in real time. Um, and so we can bring that on the ground knowledge that informs our policy advocacy. And we also have incredible partnerships with local communities, local, local groups across the country. And together, we're a real force. It's this combination of internal expertise, strong partnerships, and the empowerment of local communities that American Rivers has and will continue to rely on to accomplish all of these goals. Certainly, all of these things are required when it comes to tackling our third priority, improving protection and management of the nation's floodplains. One of the big steps that the administration has taken is reinstating what's called the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. Um, and it, that's, that's a key step toward improving protection and management of the nation's floodplain. For some of the specific benefits and needs around floodplain management, we're gonna turn to someone working really closely on these issues. Oh, my name is Olivia Dorothy, and I am the director for American Rivers Upper Mississippi River Basin Program. So there are a lot of things that the administration can advance uh, in the first 100 days, you know, and and that includes just directing funds and resources that the government already has available that Congress has already approved. Um, and so, you know, we are really hoping that within the next 100 days, given the magnitude of climate related disasters that we've had throughout the United States, you know, the the um, the Biden-Harris team uh, and President Biden has said, you know, multiple times that the climate is an emergency and that we need to be uh, focusing resources and attention on real solutions. And, you know, a big part of that is going to be with uh, flood damage reduction, flood risk management, um, looking at how we are uh, developing in our floodplains, using our floodplains and 
how especially and, and really any kind of development around rivers and water uh, climate change is totally uh, altering how uh, the water is moving um, through the water cycle you know with more intense heavy storm events it's changing how it's moving over the landscape uh, in a lot of places it's coming down faster than can be absorbed by groundwater and so that's creating a lot of surface runoff which is contributing to a lot of flooding. I think a lot of times in the past we've um, we've thought about flooding as a disaster and something that we need to protect people from and communities from. But flooding is an essential part of the river's ecosystem, and you know, and it and it keeps rivers healthy. And when we have healthy natural resources, we have healthy human communities. And so we need to think about how we are changing our land development along rivers to take advantage of the ecosystem services that come with the floods and with the rivers and start really trying to live a little bit more in harmony with the water instead of seeing it as um, as the enemy and trying to fight it and keep it away. So that's a really dangerous approach to managing flood flooding and floods in the Midwest uh, under climate change. And so to change that is going to take significant federal action and federal coordination. Listening to Olivia, it's easy to think of floodplain management as an infrastructure issue, a matter of where we build or don't, of levees and dams. But people are at the core of this issue, which is one of the reasons it's such a high priority for American rivers. People's lives are at risk. Um, people are already grappling with this. Uh, I mentioned the Mississippi River flood in 2019. You know, it, that was the longest flood event on record. Um, you know, it wasn't just a flood in terms of stage. It was, you know, it was a flood uh, in terms of duration. You know, when we're talking about you know, what the future is going to look like with climate change, um, you know, that's it. We're going to be seeing these longer duration flood events. And that has major implications for how we are managing floodplains and our flood defenses. But if we are really start looking at changing the way we develop floodplains to plan for these longer flood events, these more permanent flood events, uh, to take advantage of the ecosystem services that floods provide, it's also really important to think about equity uh, redlining, um, especially along the Mississippi River, we have a lot of uh, Black, Latinx, Hmong uh, uh, communities that live in our floodplain along the Mississippi River. And these communities are carrying higher uh, burdens of residual risk, even though they live behind levees. We know that with climate change, as I explained earlier, uh, these levees are going to be more and more likely to fail in the future. Future. And so it is really important that uh, as we are looking at developing our floodplains in uh, more holistic ways that we are in, uh, including these communities. Um, so one of the things I'm definitely watching is whether or not he'll declare a national emergency around climate change. That's going to free up a lot of extra funding and we need it. We need a lot of money, a lot of investments. There's just a, a whole host of construction projects uh, in, or in and around our floodplains to make communities and people a little more climate resilient, uh, as well as, you know, restoring critical habitat for fish and wildlife, because we know that floodplain development has been a big driver of uh, the loss of habitat um, throughout the United States as well. 
So before we dive into our next priority, it's important to have a little background. As many of you likely know, one of the most successful ways to restore a river is by removing dams. And in 2020, nearly 70 dams were removed. In early 2021, exciting initiatives for unprecedented dam removals, like those on the Snake River, and we'll get into that later, are making their way through planning processes. But there are nearly 90,000 dams that remain in the country. So as the fourth priority, American Rivers encourages the Biden-Harris administration to launch a national initiative to prioritize and fund dam removal. And to learn more about what that would entail, we're turning to Serena McLean. Hi, I'm Serena McLean, a Director of River Restoration at American Rivers. I lead our national dam removal practice and typically work out of our headquarters office in Washington, D.C. There is so much that the Biden-Harris administration can do in the first 100 days to advance dam removal, but specifically there are two things that we'd like to see the administration focus on. The first is prioritizing and funding barrier removal to improve habitat, connectivity, water quality, and public safety. Um, And they can do that by increasing funding and coordination for key federal agencies that work on this issue. So that would be NOAA, the U.S. Forest Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, FEMA, and to a certain extent, um, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, The idea would be that we would be looking for increased funding through existing programs that already exist with those agencies, but also really looking for the Biden administration to establish an interagency community of practice around dam removal to allow these federal agencies to share knowledge, best management practices, and again, help coordinate um, when looking at multiple funding sources. More importantly, in my mind, um, because what I just mentioned is kind of like our bread and butter, right? It's like what we always push for. And it's, and it's, and it's to a certain extent leveraging existing programs that are already incredibly successful and figuring out how to make them more successful. The thing that is newer but could have like huge ramifications is getting the federal agencies to really examine um, the operation of federal dam facilities, specifically to develop a schedule for reviewing that operation and really developing plans to, one, ensure compliance with modern environmental laws and that there's an adequate review of true maintenance and repair costs for operating those structures, as well as developing accurate budget projections and cost, a cost-benefit analysis to really analyze whether or not they should continue to be maintained and operated, right? If we want them to have accurate Um, review for accurate budget projections, we also want to know then, is that structure still serving its intended purpose? And if so, um, is the continued operation of that worth the cost you're going to pay? And one of the things that we're really looking to see in that cost-benefit analysis is a true and accurate accounting of environmental costs. So we have these 90,000 dams left in the country, but they're not necessarily there because they need to be. And in many cases, their continued presence on the landscape causes both real and potential harm. And without some sort of assessment, we don't understand if they're serving their purpose, if they aren't, and if they're doing undue harm in the process. 
you know, we spend a lot of time talking about dam removal, at least in American Reverse, right, as a way to restore populations for aquatic species. And so we talk a lot about fish because there's a huge benefit to fish and other aquatic species through removing a dam. But they truly are multi-benefit projects, right? And so the other reason they should prioritize them is I, it's a dam is a piece of built infrastructure in a stream. They're not built to live forever. They, most of them have the average design life of a dam is 50 years. Um, the bottom line is a lot of these dams are outliving their design life. And so they are things that have to be maintained. They have to be repaired. You know, they have to, you know, they're new environmental standards that they have to be brought up to meet. And so safety becomes a huge motivating factor for removing dams. You know, we've seen stories of the Oroville Dam in California a couple of years ago where towns have had to be evacuated. In Taunton, Massachusetts, at the Whittington Dam, dams, dams fail, dams threaten to fail. Um, and, you know, safety is a, is a huge concern. Obviously, the single fastest, most effective way to restore a river um, in a sustainable way is to remove a dam. So when Serena talks about environmental costs, she's really talking about the negative impact that dams can have on the environmental services that we rely on rivers for. So what exactly are those services? They're all the things rivers provide for communities. So think clean drinking water, flood control, recreation, our mental health. Dam removal is a really good tool for smart infrastructure management. A couple of examples of this would be working with, we just removed the Middle Fork Nooksack Dam in the state of Washington, working with the city of Bellingham. That dam was originally built as a point of diversion for the city's water supply. They weren't using it. They hadn't been using it to the extent they needed, that they could have. And the dam was deteriorating. There was also blocking critical passage for salmon. Um, which are a priority recovery species under, you know, the Endangered Species Act. Um, they're also an important species to the Nooksack tribe and the Lummi Nation, um, two of the key um, tribal organizations that really, you know, helped to make those, that project happen. But, you know, by bringing a group and a number of partners together, you know, we determined that you could remove the dam, restore the Middle Fork Nooksack, get passage for salmon and other species. And then the diversion, the water diversion could also be maintained. Um, the bottom line is you can update your water infrastructure and your point of diversion while getting stream restoration at the same time, which you know, is a win for everyone, which is really, is really awesome. And so one thing when talking about dam removal and thinking about dam removal, it comes to like the nation's management of our water infrastructure. It allows us an opportunity to rethink how we're doing it and do it better the next time around. In addition to thinking about policies and funding that help to remove obsolete or unsafe dams, American Rivers also works closely with communities and dam owners who are looking to remove dams that no longer serve their purposes. We know there's a lot that the Biden-Harris administration is trying to push forward in this first 100 days. And honestly, with the first two years of 
their administration in. But I think one of the reasons that dam removal um, makes sense to prioritize is obviously there's a lot of conversation about infrastructure, potential infrastructure bills, infrastructure management. And we know that the nation's infrastructure writ large, not just dams, is, you know, is old and failing and underfunded and needs a lot of attention. And thinking about dam removal as a part of that package is just, you know, it's a, na- it's a natural, right? Like rivers and water-related infrastructure are part of that package. And one thing dam removal gets you that other things don't <laughs> is that it's a one-time cost and a sustainable solution. So far today, we've talked about ways to improve the health of rivers that are impacted in one way or another, and that's really important. It's also incredibly important to protect those that are still free-flowing, which is why our fifth priority is to increase protection of wild and scenic rivers. To learn more about these rivers that are so vital, especially when it comes to building climate resilience, we'll turn to our resident expert. Hi, I'm David Morick. I'm the Senior Director of Wild and Scenic Rivers and Public Lands for American Rivers. So David, tell us, what can the Biden-Harris administration do in the first 100 days for wild and scenic rivers? Well, I think the first thing is sort of undoing the damage done by the previous administration, and they're taking steps to do that. So whether or not that's policies around uh, mining or um, even uh, policies that we're considering privatizing public lands, there, um, there are a lot of policies that are being that are being looked at to, to that the Biden administration is looking at to undo, and they're already taking steps to undo some of those. They're also um, putting in um, champions for for wild rivers, wild and scenic rivers, and public lands in general in really good positions, such as Deb Holland from and as a um, uh, proposed for Secretary of the Interior. And so we're really excited about the possibility of having people. Uh, at the heads of key agencies like the U.S. Forest Service and the and the BLM to help uh, support wild and scenic river conservation, provide um, the kinds of of um, funding needed to help manage our existing system of wild and scenic rivers. So I think that's probably the big biggest single um, thing that they're doing to take steps to support the national wild and scenic river system. Before we get too much further, I asked David to explain wild and scenic rivers to us. So what are wild and scenic rivers? The Wild and Scenic Rivers System and the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act was created in 1968. It sought to to create, well, it did create a national policy to balance our development, damming, diverting of, of our rivers that we had done throughout our history. It recognized that we needed to balance that the um, our use of rivers and our harnessing of rivers by by setting aside some rivers in a protected system, and so what a wild and scenic river designation practically does is it it lets a river act like a river and it protects its essential values. So it it makes sure that a river stays free flowing, that it's able to meander. Um, and, and also to protect values such as recreation, scenery, wildlife, fisheries, even cultural resources. 
The Wild and Scenic Rivers Act is a critical tool to protect important rivers from coast to coast. And American Rivers is excited to see so many public lands and water champions nested in the Biden administration, including Deb Holland. You know, she comes from New Mexico and New Mexico happens to be home of uh, one of the most important unprotected wild rivers in the country, and that's the Gila. It's the home of America's first wilderness, but the, the health of that wilderness is really dependent on the health of the river. And so the campaign and effort that uh, Senators Martin Heinrich, formerly uh, Senator Udall, um, have championed is really a centerpiece of our work on wild and scenic rivers around the country. And so we're hopeful that the administration, as that bill works its way through Congress, will really be supportive of that comprehensive protection for the Gila River. The campaign on the Gila River is incredibly exciting, and it'll have resounding benefits for the river, wildlife, and the communities. And it isn't alone. So, yeah, I mean, there's, um, it's it's really exciting. There's, there uh we have so many active campaigns that are going on around the country right now. Um, before the 50th anniversary of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act in 2018, we and our partners like American Whitewater and others launched our 5,000 miles of wild campaign seeking to protect 5,000 miles of new wild and scenic rivers. And to put that in context, that would be a 50% increase nearly in the size of the Wild and Scenic River system. And, the the idea has really taken hold in a lot of really great places and to protect a, a whole slew of our last best free-flowing rivers around the country, including in places like um, Oregon, where uh, Senator Ron Wyden and Senator Jeff Merkley just introduced the River Democracy Act, which would protect close to 5,000 miles in that state alone. Uh, in Washington state, um, the Wild Olympics would protect, I think, 454 miles of new wild and zinc rivers that um, flow through or out of Olympic National Park and surrounding national forests. So incredible rainforest uh, protection um, bill there. In Montana, um, uh, the Montana's Headwaters Legacy Act would protect some of Montana's best free-flowing rivers uh, and in a state that's that's really defined by rivers. Um, it's one that we're really excited about uh, Senator Tester championing, and it, it comes on the heels of, of just years of great grassroots organizing um, in, in the Big Sky State. I mentioned, already mentioned the Gila, which is a really exciting one in, in New Mexico. Um, also Deep Creek in Colorado, one of, one of Colorado's um, just most spectacular uh, waterways. Um, in, in California, there are a number of wild and scenic bills, including the Northwest Mountains and Rivers campaign that, um, that uh, Representative Huffman has been championing there. Uh, so around the country, there's just a, a, a real hunger for, and, and that's not even to mention the, the campaigns that are um, sort of nascent campaigns or that in, you know, whether it's places like Alabama or uh, Virginia um, or Michigan, where people and local groups are really uh, looking hard at, at, at wild and scenic um, for their for their local rivers. So, and I, and I will say that you know, at American Rivers, we're also looking at ways in which we can uh, work with our tribal partners to assess 
not only their interest in engaging in, in wild and scenic conservation, um, becoming a more meaningful partner in the process to consider what rivers uh, what should be protected and why, but also looking at, are there, are there parts of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act that should be looked at to make sure that they are co-equal partners, say with states and the federal government that um, were not included back in 1968 when the act was created. This list of wild and scenic river initiatives is inspiring, but the list itself isn't the goal. For American rivers, it's critical that we don't just add more rivers to the system, but that we also ensure that rivers that are already designated are protected and managed appropriately. This means that the land management agencies tasked with protecting and managing our wild and scenic rivers need sufficient funding and staff capacity to do their jobs and ensure that the values of our wild and scenic rivers are protected as the act intended. Protecting important rivers and public lands is a cornerstone of the Biden-Harris administration for so many reasons, one of them being resilience to climate change. The Biden-Harris administration have adopted uh, as a frame for a lot of conservation, this idea of 30 by 30, the camp a campaign for nature to protect 30% of nature by 2030. And um, we, we support that goal. But what we're hoping that they will do is um, really see the value of rivers and elevate and prioritize rivers within the context of the 30 by 30 campaign. Because if you look at, if you look at from um, either from an ecosystem service uh, services perspective or a biodiversity perspective, all lands are not created equally. And, um, whether it's a landscape ecologist or a wildlife biologist, um, and certainly, um, you know, fisheries biologists will tell you that that rivers are are really comparatively, the rivers and riverside lands are comparatively uh, more valuable than a lot of other lands. And so they're, they're really the connective tissue, the capillaries, so to speak, of the landscape. And so what we're working to do with some other partners is to really elevate rivers and, and among that, among those priorities of lands and oceans within the 30 by 30 campaign for nature. Climate change, thankfully, is a is a top priority of the Biden Harris administration, and and river conservation and especially protecting rivers is this is an essential tool to making sure we're preserving whether it's um, clean, cold sources of of drinking water for downstream communities, or protecting biodiversity, fish and wildlife uh, habitat. Um, wild and scenic river conservation is is uh, a key tool to meeting those objectives. And so we're hopeful that that the Biden-Harris administration will kind of redouble their efforts and see uh, wild and scenic river conservation and public and, and more broadly public lands conservation um, at the watershed scale as a as a climate resilient strategy that's at the top of their list. It sounds like there's a lot of momentum around wild and scenic river protections. What's that all about? Why now, David? Yeah, so, you know, I think there are a couple of reasons. One was the 50th anniversary of the Wild and Rivers Act that just really shined a light on, on the, the value of the system, the Wild and River system and the value of this tool. The, I think the river community is embracing protection strategies more and more. We're also seeing a recognition of other groups who focus on, say, forests or wildlife um, 
they've also recognized the value of water and rivers and the important increasing importance of rivers in a climate stressed environment because while you know we we talk about climate change in terms of temperature the reflection how we how most people and most americans experience climate change is actually through the hydrologic cycle right droughts floods um uh, too much snow, not enough water delivered at the, or delivered at the wrong time. And so I think it's really, um, what's, what's emerged in the last five or six years is a, is a, um, is a thirst for, for like, how, how can we protect these intact river systems while we're also spending a lot of time and, and effort in, in restoring ones that are, that are compromised. Like David said, we have to continue thinking both about, you know, protecting our last best rivers and restoring those that aren't in great shape. And when it comes to restoring rivers, a proposal on the snake has stepped to center stage. To learn about it, we're going back to Amy. So when we think about national investment in rivers and infrastructure and economic revitalization, there is one really exciting idea that has emerged in the Pacific Northwest. And it's close to my heart because I happen to live in Portland, Oregon, and I I kind of see this playing out um, in my daily life. But Congressman Simpson, Congressman Mike Simpson, uh, is a Republican from Idaho, and he has released a potentially transformational vision for saving salmon, investing in healthy rivers, investing in clean, affordable energy, agriculture, and the region's infrastructure that would create jobs and revitalize the economy in this region. And we're so excited about it at American Rivers because it his 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 framework includes um, some actions that are absolutely essential to saving iconic salmon from extinction, specifically Snake River salmon. Congressman Simpson's proposal is not perfect. Uh, in fact, there are things that we have concerns about and we want to talk about. But it is incredibly comprehensive. It's the result of two years of conversations that that he had with stakeholders from across the region. And it's really the first um, serious solution that's been put forth to solve these interconnected challenges in our region. One of the key actions that needs to happen is removing four dams on the Lower Snake River in eastern Washington. This would be the biggest river and salmon restoration effort the world has ever seen. So it's inspiring on that grand scale. It's also absolutely essential that we replace the benefits those four dams provide. We have to acknowledge that those dams have value. They they are part of our region's uh, energy and, and economy infrastructure. So we have to replace those benefits. And that's why uh, 